Welcome to the Beth and Kelly Show, a weekly Facebook Live conversation between Beth Fortune and Kelly Klingen. That's me. And we've made it into a podcast. Beth Fortune currently serves as Education Director at Wintergrass, the National American String Teachers Association Board, and Chair of the National Council for Orchestral Education. I currently serve as Education Director at Jazz Ed the Washington president at Jazz Education Network and Jazz Curriculum Officer for Washington Music Educators Association. We have a platform and we really want to leverage it for positive change. Please hit us up. Let's have a conversation and uh, let's move our practice as music educators forward. For the season. And that, folks, is Doc Wallace. Many of you might know Doc Wallace from his social media presence, his fun um, viola playing and improvisational skills. Um, But he is also, ladies and gentlemen and all people, he is also the head of the string department at Berkeley College. So we are really lucky. Kelly and I wanted to do a Berkeley episode and I was like, we're going to go straight to the top here, folks. We're, to the top. we're going to get Doc Wallace. So welcome to the show. I am thrilled to be here. And uh, I was I was watching a lot of the episodes and I'm like, wow, what am I going to add? Everybody's speaking the truth. And what else could there be? But I, I'm hoping maybe tonight I can really give you a Berkeley perspective is maybe some of my own personal perspective on how I became a polystylistic, panstylistic string weirdo, or (laughs) just also what life really is like at Berkeley, because it's, it's funny because you don't really understand it or know it unless you've really spent some time there. Like, even if you hear people talk about it or hang out with some Berkeley grads, because they're everywhere and in all kinds of parts of the Yeah. Yeah. Living there or spending time there is totally different. I mean, I had taught at fiddle camps for the longest time and, and done, a, you know, orchestra camps and all sorts of things. My introduction to Berkeley came actually in 2011 when for four years they hosted the Mark O'Connor Strings Conferences mm-hmm. at Berkeley. And, and so I had taught in O'Connor's camps um, since about 2002 and after the first one which was out in the Tennessee woods and I had grown up kind of this maverick string player in the 70s and 80s where you're a lone member of your tribe and if you're lucky maybe you wind up somewhere and you see two or three of you and you know and you connect and it's a very close-knit world but um One of the things to me that was amazing about the O'Connor camps and conferences was they were so the word that comes to my mind is ecumenical because when I was a kid I mean just to give you a little bit of my background I had kind of a bilingual string up upbringing mm-hmm. you know initially my my first and main instrument was piano which I started when I was seven mm-hmm. and played um, you know I guess I stopped taking lessons when I was uh, about 18 or so but and I considered that my main instrument until I was 16 But the instrument that my heart really had gravitated to was the fiddle because my dad was a self-taught 
musician, a, a wonderful string player. He's, he was my rhythm guitarist, and I grew up playing with him. He was a left-handed musician who played left-handed. And so when he was in graduate school at the University of Texas, he had actually bought a fiddle for eight bucks, strung it up left-handed. You know, the bass bar was still in the same place, but he flipped the bridge and flipped the strings. And I grew up with him playing like old-time fiddles, dance songs like put your little foot right here um and all kinds of bob wills things nice and, and his his younger brother his uncle was someone who kind of was very musical and wanted to be a musician but his parents kind of discouraged that and like no that's that's not a real profession but he was kind of as an unrequited thing but i found this old cassette of a jam session of my dad and my uncle when i was about five and they were playing and they just, they improvised a waltz. And my uncle said, what was that? And my dad's like, I don't know, I was following you. He's like, oh, well, I was following you. And they just started laughing and they were kind of bewildered. And then my uncle said, let's do that again. And they did another waltz. I mean, it was funny, they improvised two waltzes, two old time waltzes. And I actually took that cassette and transcribed them, you know, when I had found them years later and I gave it to my dad and played it for it's like, it's like Charlie's Waltz one and Charlie's Waltz two, you know? And, and so, um, you know, it's funny, it's like dad's listening to it. That sounds kind of like, I'd rather have Jesus, the hymn. And I'm like, yeah, it kind of does. And that's probably what's kind of filtering in. Mm -hmm. But you know, the thing is, it was, that's the kind of the home that I grew up in where music was being made, you know, like um, in church, at home, my dad would play guitar and would sing like Jimmy Rogers or classic Hank Williams. Uh, my mom's parents lived in Crockett, Texas, which was home of the the World Championship Fiddlers Festival. And back in the day, that was a big one. I mean, it, over time, you know, it kind of became less important. But back in the day, people would come from the Pacific Northwest and Louisiana yeah. and the states and compete, and it would go on for days. I mean. At its heyday, it was never quite as big as the national old time contest in Weezer, Idaho is, but it was in that vein. Yeah. So I grew up hearing that kind of music and things, but, but in any case, when I was three, I wanted a violin for Christmas mm -hmm. because I wanted to do the stuff I was hearing my dad do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, lo and behold, on Christmas morning, I unwrap a present and there's a toy violin. And I was furious because it wouldn't make any sound. And yeah. I knew what I can do. It's like, Dad, that's not the real thing at I've been cheated, you know? And so, I, and I didn't even really play it. You know, it's like, it's like, no, that's, that's a fake. That's a hoax. That's a fraud, you know? And, and so, and the funny thing is, it's like my parents later said, I mean, it's like my mom was telling one of her friends, it's like, you know, David's really interested in music. What should we do? And I mean, the Suzuki method was really not heard of in Houston back in 1973. I mean, I'm sure it was there, but it wasn't common knowledge, you know? And, and uh, you know, a woman said, well, you should take him maybe to a conservatory and let him try some instruments. I was like, well, where would we, would we find a conservatory? You know, what? Uh, so in any case, um, nothing happened of that. Right. Then, then along 1975 or so, you've got that great soundtrack to the movie Deliverance. You know, and my dad had the cassette. It's like the two cassettes that I just loved were Willie Nelson's The Redheaded Stranger, what yeah. a good record, and Dueling Banjos, and, and you know, all those other great 
bluegrass tunes and I just loved it. And so it's like, okay, take two. I want a banjo, want a banjo for Christmas. Can I have a banjo, banjo? And you know, it's like, okay, a five-year-old with a banjo. Uh, I'm sure that could be a thing, but you don't have, where do you get an eighth size banjo? But you know, I wanted to play that bluegrass music because it made my heart beat faster and made me spaz out and I wanted to make other people spaz out. So. So uh, take two, you know, there never materialized a toy banjo. Maybe there weren't toy banjos or maybe my parents are like, well, obviously David would not like a toy banjo that much. I mean, I did have toy guitars. And so I'd be making up songs and flailing around, playing all sorts of things, improvising lyrics. And because I was really perplexed as a young kid, it's like, you know, mom, what's your favorite song? Oh, I don't really have a favorite song. You don't have a favorite song? Everybody has a favorite song. Okay. And I just make a laugh, 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 laugh till you're funny. Laugh, 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 fun, laugh. Was that your favorite song? Is that your favorite song? Well, I don't know. It's nice. And so, okay, I'll make up another. And so it's that was me as a kid, just bubbling over with music. My best friend was a Victrola and a record player. I had a, a record player that I could put on neutral so I could spin stuff backwards. You know, I could... Uh, spin it super fast it had speed 16 what would have i given for that at a later age when you could slow record <laughs> down and transcribe but you know i just did it for the amusement factor you know I'd, I'd like talk- a, as a kid as someone i would say i think you might be successful at berkeley college yeah and, and, and like i'm sitting here thinking we have our last adult guest and here i am just <laughs> <laughs> Years ago, it's like you know, it's like they're asking my, my perspective on something as an adult, and I'm like, well, I don't really self-identify as an adult. Yeah, yeah that's actually oh. great. Yeah, you know? that's, <laughs> that's why you're but, getting creative um, things happening. Yeah, you know. So I mean, I guess basically what I'm saying is, you know, I, I came from a culture where I was interested in all sorts of music. I was learning music and playing in the Texas fiddle scene, and then I was blessed with the great public school string orchestra. Mm-hmm. Um, programs in Texas. And I I had pretty open-minded directors like you all, where my teachers, my wonderful orchestra director, Marilyn Llewellyn, was kind of of the perspective that as long as the kids are practicing, it's a win. Mm-hmm. And you know, sometimes went to the contest out in Crockett just to listen, because she respected the musicianship. You know, and she knew that me and my older sister Cheryl competed and learned and studied fiddle lessons with a great teacher, Michael Wise, who transcribed all this music of Benny Thomason and Terry Morris and all these other great Texas fiddlers and kind of taught us in a classical way because he wrote it down and notated it. He taught himself how to read and um, he was also kind of denied. He had gone to college at the University of Houston and he was wanting to study music, but the teachers at the time were saying, well, you're going to have to stop fiddling. Or if you want to study music, it's got to be classical music. So he got kind of a general humanities degree and got a great education. I mean, it was like... he was That like, still sounds like a story that's common. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was you know? like this humanist intellectual, and it was amazing because you would have this PBS calendar of renaissance art you know that he got for donating to public television on his coffee table is a bust of plato and dante's the divine comedy and then over there on the records you had the heifetz collection right next to texas shorty chancellor Mm -hmm. and 
it was uh, it was modeling scholarship and seriousness, but also respect for folk music and folk material. So that was a huge influence. Another huge influence was when I was seven year old, another big movie, you know, the, the Sting came out and you could big. not escape ragtime. The whole right. world was teeming with the music of Scott Joplin and I had to play it. I had to play it. It moved me in a way that nothing else did. And I remember one uh, time a babysitter was over uh, babysitting us and my sister had gotten a little, I want to say it was an Emory uh, air organ. You know, it had these keys that you could actually play chords, but it had a, maybe two and a half octaves of white and black keys. And the babysitter played the opening melody of Anarchy. I'm like, stop, play that. And she played it, played again. Write down the numbers because it had numbers for every single key. Write that down. Write down, the numbers. <laughs> Write down all the numbers, you know. And so I lobbied hard for piano lessons. You know, it's like, I want to play piano. I want to, please let me play piano. And by that time, I'm old enough that um, I could f focus and do it. And we had a piano teacher who was a marvelous musician and a really sweet lady who lived within about a you know, less than a 10 minute walk from our home. And we started, and I think she only charged $5 for a half hour lesson. And I was able to start and it was clearly, I was going through the books and let's get, buy a real piano and we got a lovely chickering. And so I was able to apply myself. So even with the piano, ragtime was what got me in. And I still wanted to do Chopin and Beethoven and the other things. And, you know, and then in high school, I, I had an Insonic ESQ-1 synthesizer, like the first synthesizer with digital wave synthesis that, and a built-in eight-track sequencer. So I was recording and writing songs and convincing everybody I had my own rock band, but it was all imaginary. <laughs> I mean, it actually had sampled kick That's drums cool. and things. It was, it was a total 80s machine, but it That's was an awesome. Itching. You know, I mean, it, yes, you know, exactly. Well, that was the other thing was I had a lot of, you know, it's funny that you should say that because, um, you know, I had a bunch of friends who were into hardcore punk mm -hmm. and, um, <laughs> yes, exactly. Dead milkman. <laughs> last summer, uh, you know, one of my projects is the Chuck and David show with Chuck Bontrager. And last, last summer, we actually, it was, we have a long running list of things that we want to learn and perform. And a song that had been on our list for a number of um, years was uh, Punk Rock Girl by the Dead Milkmen. Such a great so, Last summer, and I'll, I'll upload that uh, sometime soon, but we, yeah. um, we recorded that. I, I sang the lead vocals. We traded vocals, but I actually learned electric bass and played fretless electric bass so i was dave blood playing punk rock nice. girls so but um nice. yeah so like my friends were into punk and they listened to kpft which was pacific radio and so they had really eclectic and strange programming you know it, it's like a, there was the american atheist hour there was um an electronic music uh show and there was a a show called the funhouse show and they would have all kinds of punk, whether it was, you know, East Coast punk, West Coast punk, 
London punk, uh, you know, and some sort of humorous punk like the Toy Dolls. I remember this. James Bond lives down my street. James Bond <laughs> lives down my street. You know, it's, it's and it was, and then it, at the last, the kicker of that, the last line is, "My hair is blonde, dyed blonde." You know, so that's <laughs> stuff I was hearing. The hardest course I took in high school was general drafting, and the Funhouse show was my general drafting. Uh, hey, thing! I, I spent my whole spring break drawing a double-acting air cylinder for a drafting contest, and concluding that my skills did not lie in the visual <laughs> and mechanical arts. But um, you know, basically, all of that was just my ethos was: all music is valid. All music serves a purpose. Mm -hmm. All music is there for a reason and expresses something, and we should have access and ownership to it. And so mm -hmm. the thing was, you know, like even at the Crockett contest, it was Texas style. Right. And Texas style ain't bluegrass. Most right. people don't know the difference. And there's tons of cross-pollination, but it is different. And there was a bluegrass festival happening in the same county, same time. People wouldn't commingle. They wouldn't mm -hmm. talk to each other. And it's always weird to me that it's the same instrument. It's kind of the same language. It's the same family tree. Why don't we at least talk to each other? And so when Mark O'Connor in 1995 had this brilliant vision of what if we bring together all these great exponents of violin playing, not even fiddle playing, but violin playing, whether that's Indian classical, whether that is Texas swing, whether it's jazz, whether it is heavy metal, what if we brought some of these great exponents together and had people work with all of them and study all of them? And so that was magical. And yeah. it was it's like after the first one, I said, Mark, this is heaven on earth. You've really created something amazing. And that feeds into what you're doing at, at Wintergrass as well. But what happened was, you see, my stories go long rabbit trail. But I will always get you out. In 2011, that was at Berkeley. And I saw what was happening at Berkeley. I mean, the, the funniest thing was, you know, we had a master class and I had a Dr. Beat metronome mm -hmm. and it was dying. It was on its last transistor. You know, I'd had it for about 18 years. It traveled the world and it had seen a lot of batteries. And so it was really, really soft. And there was a sound man and said, I'll put a DI in it. And it's like, well, first of all, what kind of violin master class has a sound man? And two, said sound man would go find a DI and plug a Dr. Beat into it. I like this place. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and just also seeing the students, seeing their fluidity, and also sitting in on some of the faculty's workshops. Like, for instance, Rob Thomas was doing, I mean, he, I'm one of the things I'm really proud of was I got Rob Thomas's modern method for violin scales published because it, it was a secret scale book. It's like you had to know someone who knew someone kind of like the real book, you know, meet someone in a dark parking lot. But, you know, Matt Glazer had said, this book is like mandatory for Berkeley students. I went to the bookstore like, we've never heard of it, you yeah. know, and it turns out Rob lived only about a five minute 
walk from me in New York City, and later I went to him. I mean, he, he hadn't published it because he was revising it and everything, and he kind of doubted, well, you know, it's kind of a niche thing. I mean, it's really for jazz violin. How many jazz violinists? I'm like, Rob, no, it's important. Modal scales are in Debussy. They're in lots of other things. And my belief was and still is this scale book needs to be as known and as clung to as Carl Flesch's scale book and mm -hmm. Ivan Galamian's scale book, maybe even more so because it covers all the keys, all the modes, all the arpeggios, relates them to it all in first position. And all the money's in first position anyway. Well, most of them. <laughs> you know, and so um, I was seeing just all this wonderful thing where it was similar to what Mark was doing with his camp, so only it was high techs and, and really systematic and year long. Mike mm -hmm. Block has sometimes said, you know, being, he told me when I went to Berkeley, he said, you know, it's like being at fiddle camp all year, wrong, all year long. And I was like, wow, okay. I that better. Sounds cool. I hope I hope I can sleep because I remember once being at fiddle camp and, and going 72 hours on three hours sleep and, you know, <laughs> dealing with adrenaline addiction and the aftermath of that for a few months, you know, I so I can see that for you. Yeah. I can see you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm dealing with a similar adrenaline addiction right now, you know, yeah. so, so it's, and it, the fun part is it can be really manic and I can get a lot done, but you know, it, it is a, factoring in self-care is an important thing too right. sure. you know so so i think what what was really kind of interesting for me was just seeing wow that's a place where everything that i do is kind of honored because before before i took the berkeley job in 2014 um, I'd spent the last 19 years of my life at Juilliard, you know, in the last 22 at, in New York City. At Juilliard, I was there four years as a student, uh, you know, or five years as a student. Um, one, doing a, a program that no longer exists called the Advanced Certificate. Um, and then the DMA, getting my doctorate. And the last year of that, I was assisting the great viola teacher, Karen Tuttle. And then I didn't even have a full year off before they hired me as faculty. And so the thing about Juilliard, and it is a wonderful place and it made me who I am, but, and it wasn't just Juilliard, but I felt like everybody wanted one piece of me. They didn't want mm -hmm. the whole, it's like, well, so we don't share the rest, please. Yeah, you know. Don't share the rest. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what happened was, um, I mean, I felt like when the, when the Berkeley job opened up and I found out about it, it was funny. I was home visiting uh, my folks over Christmas time. And I remember walking, I was staying with my parents and I kind of walked down to bre breakfast because I had gotten uh, an email from the outgoing string chair, Melissa Howe, who really expanded the string department by bringing in Arabic music, some classical musicians from the Boston Symphony. Um, Celtic musicians and so she decided let's go broad and let's make bring in more styles and more kinds of music and she, there was an opening for uh, ch chief of staff for the president and she applied for that job and got it and she had sent an email and said you know this this position's going to be open and I think you'd probably be perfect for it or you, do you want to apply and I, I remember going down to breakfast and and saying you know, I just got this email, this drink chair at Berkeley's open and everybody in my family said in unison, are you going to apply? It's like, yeah, I think, I think I'm going to. This was like 2012-ish? 2014. 
Yeah, so so the the it was December 2013 right. that that letter came in. Melissa Howe chaired from 2009 to to the December 2013, and 2009 was a critical year at Berkeley because that was the year we established the American Roots program. Right. So cool. So cool. It's just stunning, you know. And so, I mean, there were a couple of things that really drew me to Berkeley, and one was what really got my heart was they were one of the first and only higher institutions of higher education and music whose mission vision and value statements i could agree with and there were yeah. two things that i really love and which i will cling to and which i will fight anybody when they're making changes to stuff at Berkeley. Yes. And I'm known. It's like, okay, Doc Wallace is standing up and making his, his soapbox speech now on behalf of his critical values, you know. And he said it on the Bill and Kelly show. Yes. That's what right. That's right. You know, and so one of them, one of them is that from the very inception of Berkeley, when it was founded in 1945, it was founded on the premise that music can be taught through the music of the day. And in the beginning, that was Joseph Schillinger and his approach, which informed Gershwin and others, and it became more broadly just jazz. And then eventually it expanded to include rock and all kinds of other things. And then under Roger Brown, our outgoing president, who who really kind of uh, steered the school for 17 years, it kind of became all-encompassing and, and branched out to include American roots, world music, various international traditions, technology, digital instruments. So that was a critical value to me that you don't have to study music history and theory in a chronological sequence. There mm -hmm. is not one period that is greater than the other there is no hierarchy when it comes to musical styles or places of origin. I am and so, that's so with that. Yes. And here's that. the other one, which I think you'll also be really with. And this really was added in 2012 by the instigation uh, and the just the real insistence of faculty members that Berkeley has to have a deep commitment to the music of the African diaspora. And that one hit me in the heart because, again, Scott Joplin got me to really get into music. And I love he was my favorite composer for so many years. And so many of the musics that I love and play, including Southern fiddle traditions, owe a deep mm -hmm. debt to the music of black musicians in America and African musicians in America and even just the cross-cultural things that are happening. I mean, even if you look at something as recent in my lifetime as like, you know, the talking heads remain in light when they said, okay, we're including African polyrhythm. And that totally changed what David Byrne and everybody else was doing. And around that a little bit later, you got Paul Simon doing Graceland and those things. And so to me, while Juilliard was wonderful and I loved it, it was very much about preserving a certain music, a certain tradition, a certain canon, they were not against the fact that I played Texas fiddle music or anything else. If they were, they wouldn't have let me write my doctoral thesis on it. Right. And I feel like 
President Polisi took pride that, hey, you know, I mean, he was telling me, yeah, I was giving a keynote speech at Yale University the other day, and they were saying something about bluegrass. And I'm like, well, I got a faculty member who, you know, and so in a sense, they were proud of it. Right. But they didn't want to commit to it because it, it wasn't- It didn't change their practice. It didn't change right. their core curriculum. That's yeah. Right. So, so, you know, that's kind of how I wound up where I am, where it's like, you know, uh, Melissa, how, you know, kind of would joke, no, well, she, one of her basic motto was play the music you love on the instrument you love. And that was her philosophy behind the Berkeley string department. You know, if you love it, if you want to play it, do it here. Let's learn to do it on oud, violin, cello, yeah. you know, uh, whatever your, your principal instrument is. And, you know, something else she, she sometimes laughed and, and would say, no style left behind, you know. Kind of... <laughs> that's a t-shirt, put it on a t-shirt. Yeah, you know, so I think that's really kind of where we're at. And I mean, the, the other thing is we have, uh, we have a Dean of Admissions, Damian Bracken, who basically is kind of of the opinion, well, why not? You know, it's, it's like yeah. he, he'd say, you know, we have, we had a, I mean, we'll have people audition on, you know, ukulele or various, you know, Chinese tra traditional instruments. Yeah. And, and, and it's like, kind of when people ask me, it's like, well, you know, if they can play, yeah, bring them in, you know, why not? And, and sometimes when I'm talking with students, like there might be someone who's like, okay, I'm a pipa player from Shanghai and I'm interested in Berkeley. And, and a lot of times I'll talk with them and it's like, what do you want to do? Because it, and things may change because we're getting an amazing number lately of students playing traditional Chinese instruments. And my question to the students sometimes is, what are you wanting to do with your career and what are you wanting to do with your instrument? Because if their ambition is, I want to play Chinese classical music and play Chinese opera, we're not as equipped to train them for that as another place would be probably in their home country. Mm -hmm. However, if they're saying, I want to take my instrument into new contexts, or I want to learn film scoring, or I want to explore my music in a fusion context and see what does it sound like when you put together a musician from China, one from Iran, one from Philadelphia, and someone whose expertise is in electronic digital instruments, you know, and let's create a music that doesn't even exist. That's my That's favorite fun. thing. Yeah. You know, there was this one band, I mean, you can check them out, Aerialist, A-E-R, uh, I think, I-A-L-I-S-T-S or something like that. It's a band where um, you have musicians. It was started by uh, a boyfriend and girlfriend from Canada. They both were fiddle players, one who was also a producer and very skilled on guitar, and they all sang a little bit. You had... Uh, a wonderful Celtic harpist. You had a claw hammer banjo player from Canada who also was like transcribing Lester Young solos. And um, I think that was it. There might be another one or two. Uh, the violinist had studied with the great violinist on our faculty, Simone Shaheen, who's one of the leading Arabic violinists. Him. We know Simone Shaheen. He is he with our kids. Yeah. Great. They, they love like Vasen and those things. And so yeah. I'm, I was like listening to a song and it's like, okay, I'm hearing Canadian 
fiddle inflections and ornaments and bowing. I'm hearing jazz harmonies. I'm hearing these wicked Scandinavian meters, which I can't count, and I'm not sure what they're doing, but I know where it's coming from. <laughs> and I'm hearing some of Simone's half-lats. And it's like, okay, and I was just kind of curious. It's like, what, what genre is that on Spotify or something? And I looked, I looked them up, and they were classifying themselves as prog trad, you know, <laughs> so progressive traditional music. I'm like, cool, cool. you know. Uh, and, it, and I was just thinking that could not have existed without a Berkeley and without right. the, and we have, we're all on the fifth floor of this normally <laughs> of this uh, uh, building on 1140 Boylston street. And on that fifth floor, that's where the magic happens. And you can hear different things in different rooms. You know, the, the, my old office build room was between two rooms and i would have these ivesian mashups of okay Maeve gilchrist the wonderful celtic harpist would have a celtic ensemble happening over here and simone would be teaching a lesson on macam and so i would be in this celtic arabic mix or mimi rabson would yeah. have a funk yeah. ensemble and eugene friesen would have a free jazz jam going and i'd be in this funky atonal swirl and it make it hard <laughs> it to get like the perfect place for you oh um, yeah it, it was really heaven you know just to really soak it all in and the other thing that was fabulous was just we'd see a different kind of student you know like a lot of times people would say how would you compare and contrast your Juilliard students with your Berkeley? And I could say they're both deeply, deeply committed. They're all probably deeply obsessive to some degree because you don't become a great musician unless you really focus and you really care about getting things right. Uh, they all had deep passion. They all had performance skills. But I'd say some of the things that were a little bit different, the Berkeley musicians would tend to be later starters oftentimes a lot more self-taught where they'd pick things up from YouTube or somewhere else. You know, some of our students never had a private lesson in their life until they came to Berkeley. Um, more comfortable with improvisation, more comfortable playing by ear. And so, I mean, the thing is, we all come through different roads and we all catch up eventually, but it's just we have different skills. And that's the fun thing for me. I mean, one of the gifts to me was... Um, Teaching at Juilliard, I one of the hats that I wore was to to be a music literature and and uh, theory teacher and rhythmic studies teacher to the dance division. So oh, that every year, <laughs> it was it was great. It was hard because I'd have a class of generally you know, depending, you know, it generally they would have, they were very binary at the time where it's like we admit 12 male, 12 female. And, you know, some people might drop out or one year they might have, you know, expand to 26 or something, but it would basically be equally divided. But the thing was the dancers would be so diverse in their backgrounds. And, and so they would have different experiences in dance and different experiences in music. And so for me as a teacher, like I had a student once who had been a violinist studying music at the Royal Conservatory in London and very high level of knowledge. And in fact, if, 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 if she were able to take the regular music theory in her schedule, she would have been placed in it, but it was just such that her dance classes, she had to be in the 9 a.m. theory slot. 
And so she was stuck with me. And meanwhile, you had some people who maybe they grew up in a school in New York City that did not really have much in the way of music programs. And so that was the balance. Now, the thing is, they were all musical because you can't be a dancer without being musical. It's just their head knowledge or their experience with different genres may have been different. But the thing that was glorious was this was the model of how I wanted to run the Berkeley String Department. Yeah. You know, it's like I the, the dance division is very different from the music division at Juilliard. In the music division, you're with your one private teacher and you're mentored by that one private teacher. And for the most part, students don't change a whole lot, you know. And depending on how friendly the teachers are, there may or may not be consequences. I know sometimes teachers take it as a deep personal affront. It's like, you know, you're not much student anymore, basically. It's kind of the yeah. the thing um, yeah. where it's just, you know, and, and I've, I've heard singers talk about how, yeah, I never got another good operatic role when I switched teachers and it kind of messed up the rest of my education. And, you know, that's messed up and it shouldn't be, but we know it's there. No, you know? it is. Um, and I mean, the other thing is there there wasn't a tremendous amount of collaboration, you know, between the teachers. I mean, that changed. There's I can give some props to like Heidi Castleman, the great viola teacher at Juilliard, who actually created this. You know, it's called the Acht ACHT Viola Studio, where it's Misha Amory, um, Heidi Castleman, uh, who's the H, Sinyun Huang uh, and Stephen Tannenbaum. The four of them decided this kind of silo thing is bs what we want to do let's it's get it's not together. good for kids either i don't think and violas have enough pro we have enough problems anyway so you know what let's just get our four studios together let's have the students play for each other have them support each other in a collegial master class yeah. and let's break down the studio walls a bit and props to them that happened after i had left but i i feel really good about that and i felt like it it really created more of a siblinghood among the the students and that's what you want but in the dance division they're like they're getting students with really diverse backgrounds some of them are classical ballet only from the time they were three. Some right. of them were modern only and want to be a choreographer. Some of them have incredible skills and a lot of the dancing they learned was on the street. You know, so there, there are some really good b-boys and girls who come in to Juilliard where they can do a great audition and they found their way into dance via a circuitous route, you know, and, and so the thing is you would have all these different stylistic backgrounds and at Juilliard they would get trained in everything like we're going to do some modern stuff we're going to do some ballet we're going to do some Martha Graham we're going to do some things where you're going to collaborate with a composer and create your own new works we're going to to bring in living choreographers who are going to create new works on you and so in the four years those dancers were getting a comprehensive technique to enable them to do any kind of dance create. And, yeah in yeah. the careers they had they go some may go to san francisco ballet others go to william forsyth in germany and do modern others start their own companies and nonprofits. and and it's just amazing you know and there was one time i was flying and i picked up the delta flight magazine cover and i looked and i'm like that's my student on the cover dancing and she's like three feet doing the splits above a cornfield 
And like she had moved out to Iowa and become a dance icon, or sorry, not Iowa, Idaho. She had become the major dance figure in Idaho within five years of graduation. You know, so there's people who can pioneer. And so the thing and is- like the string folks are working on the Tchaikovsky or something. Exactly. Exactly. I would and kind love of in their own to silos and you yeah. can't... How, how have you taken all of this and how has it affected the core curriculum? You know, like for me, I think yeah. for Beth too, it was like two years of history, ear training, theory that all is Western European, right. just two years, the core curriculum. Does sure. Berkeley have that? What happens? So how does that happen? Well, I mean, you could actually look at, at degree plans on Berkeley. You know, I'd say one of the best things if people are curious, they should go to a page on, what's you know, berkeley.edu, make sure it's B-E-R-K-L-E-E. -E. Yes. If you do L-E-Y, that's left coast. That's, that's California. <laughs> Another fine Berkeley. Another uh, you know, fine Berkeley. I, we we love California Berkeley too, you know, but it's it's a different thing. But um, if you click on majors, you'll see that we've got twelve majors. So I mean, that's the other thing that's kind of cool is we don't just have performance and education, even yeah. though those are two of my favorite majors. But we've got music production and engineering, music therapy, um, music business and management. Mm -hmm. You know, and and just all these in tons of composition majors. It's like I realized Berkeley has four different composition majors, really, because film scoring is mm -hmm. a specific composition. The composition degree is more like a traditional classical composition, although slightly different. We have a degree called contemporary writing and production, which is kind of the one-stop producer. So you're learning producing skills, recording skills, mixing skills, collaborative skills, so that you know you have your own studio where it's like, I do jingles, I do film scores, I do songs, I help people with demos, you name it, I produce it, I can do it. And t many of those students are multi-instrumentalists and do a lot right. of the stuff yeah. themselves. Um, and then there's also jazz composition, which is kind of hardcore Herb Pomeroy style really learning i mean i've been stunned by some of my students who have taken that major because there will be students like there was a, a wonderful violist who um who came in from taiwan knew a fair amount of jazz because she actually played a charlie parker transcription in her improvisation and had a good foundation but she did a double major in performance and jazz composition and her senior recital had big band charts, which I swear that they could have been on the Tonight Show. They could have been anything. It's like she thoroughly mastered That's that so whole system. I and love that she's doing that, and she's a string player. She's a violist. Well, I mean, that was, I'll tell you. Here was the thing. It was a freaky summer because I had three composers who, and initially they were all going into film scoring. One was from China one from Taiwan, one from Korea, and two of them auditioned playing Charlie Parker transcriptions. And I remember I walked away from that audition and, and, and I told someone, I said, you know what, I predict about 30 years from now, there's going to be a golden period of film scoring in, you know, in, in Eastern Asia, mm. and the composers will all be women and it will all be jazz inflected. 
and they'll all be viola centric and violas because i mean these three ladies they could slay they could play they could and the the other thing was um you know they all grew tremendously and it was amazing to see that you know but so i mean basically there's a lot of different majors at berkeley Right. And if you go on the major page, you can actually look at videos of students describing it, faculty describing it. And if you want to get into the dirt, into the deep uh, curriculum, you can actually see what are the courses that you take every semester to earn that degree. Is there a lot of crossover between those majors? There can be. And, and actually, oh, yes, absolutely. Well, that's this is where Berkeley is different from any place because yeah. when Berkeley is working the way it should. It is a microcosm of the music building and the musical world. Right. Because, um, you know, here, let me just give you an example. There's, there was a really fun uh, kind of fusion progressive jazz band called the Two Birds Band. And so there were these two violinists who also like to amplify and a cellist. And they added to that a bass player and a drummer and sometimes a guitarist. And sometimes they would do their arrangements of things, but they were also doing a lot of their original compositions. And one of the, the violinists was actually um, a, a film scoring major. And it was funny because they, they took Bird as kind of their last name and the two birds were like the two violinists and they would wear masks with feathers on them and had feathers glued to their violin and you know did some pretty crazy dancing and music videos and things. But they had music production and engineering students produce their first videos and their first EP. They got together with a business major to help them create website and to manage their first East Coast tour. And they actually applied for a grant and did a little bit of a European tour and went to Paris, you know, and so and and so if that's the thing that's magical when things are happening where you've got composers working with producers working with performers working with business people so that you essentially have an environment where there is an industry so to speak within berkeley and you also have kind of a a place where people are creating a lot of startup companies and some of them work and they go on and then some of them fail, but you learn in the process, you know, right, right. I mean, a lot of the times I will part of a big part of my job is mentoring and guiding people. And a big question is, what am I doing with my band? Mm -hmm. You know, and people have this tension of some of us are really committed. Some of us aren't quite committed. This one member seems to be a real problem and we don't know if we want them for the long haul, but does them, should we kick them out? Should we work this out? Does yeah. them leave mean that that we're done or does it mean that we hire another person? And I mean, it's like, I'm just like, oh gosh, this is like the drama of real life freelance musicianship. Well, that's the thing. That's like, that key word is real right there, right? Like. I personally, and I know pretty much, I'm pretty sure Kelly was also personally, um, I was disciplined in my college for having a gig and ended up having to take an incomplete in a class because I was needing to get to a gig. And um, the, the final session, which wasn't having a test, by the way, there was no test to take. 
the final session was required and I therefore missed it and had to take an incomplete in the class. Um, so, you know, it's just like the keyword is real and I don't want to yeah. like cut off any of the awesome narrative that you're talking about, but like for me, what I'm hearing and it, what is important is that this is a place where students can go, they can come with the skills they have. Um, without they, shame, right, without... they don't have to check who they are at the door. And part of the fabric of what Berkeley has cultivated as your climate there is that collaboration is highly recommended it's demonstrated by our faculty it's, yeah. it's something that we really want to see you doing and actually we're probably going to make that part of what you're doing for your classes and it's like this place where you can form a band and that is actually celebrated that is actually something that the faculty is helping you like figure out you're getting actual ideas about business management you're getting ideas about taking an idea and making it a business so entrepreneurship um you're working with composers you are composing you're picking up other instruments you're learning okay kelly and i we need to get someone to help us plug in an XLR cord. We don't even know where that goes. You know what I mean? <laughs> Had we gone to Berkeley, that would have been par for the course. We would have known how to do all that stuff. The DI box, um, yeah, I know that I can hook my violin up to one, but I'm gonna need a little help, right? And all of this stuff is stuff that like, never was a part of the curriculum that I was taught in college. And I'm pretty sure in many colleges, even to this day. Which is why we both left college unprepared for our careers, really. But also, which is why we left college with our degrees, got into music ed, and then started being crazy ladies, talking about this stuff, preaching about this stuff, and trying to make waves in the music ed community. Right. And um, which is why I just like. Uh, I. It, it, it. Something comes to mind that I hear as a criticism. And I want to spend a minute unpacking it if we don't mind. And that's, that's the idea that like dabbling is somehow means that you're not gonna be great at anything. Yeah. And I don't like that. I don't think that's healthy. And I and I hear I hear the Berkeley message sounds like dabbling is valued. Like go ahead Absolutely. and experience this and that and that and you don't have to be a master at yeah. any of those things to be successful um you don't have to hide that you do it right like my introduction to playing improvisatory music was me alone in my room with the door closed playing along to like a bob dylan tape or something and it's just like no one taught it to me 
I, I did it by myself and I was embarrassed to show it to other people. And it's just like not feel shameful. Like right now I'm picking up guitar because A, I teach a class. I teach beginning guitar at Ballard High School. But you know what? My biggest secret right now is that I friggin' love it. And I want, <laughs> I want to sit and sing Merle Haggard covers. Okay, that's what I want to do. I want to play that. That's what I want to do. That's, I would like to take that to the next level, <laughs> you know? And, and you know, I, I think we do value a lot of different things. And you know, you mentioned yeah. uh, about core curriculum. I mean, Berkeley does have certain courses that all students have to take Sure. within each major and within basically the string department also helps the string performance major students. And we did a revision of the curriculum and clarified it and we got you know new standards in 2016. It really needs to be revised and updated, but it takes some time whenever you invest in that That's but one of the big old projects it's huge and it's and generally a lot of times people don't really like to do it because it's uh, most people feel like what we're doing is fine if it ain't broke you know why but you know it's there's always something that you're leaving out and the world is always changing you know and and no matter how much you include examples or things you're not touching on the richness of the reality, you know, and so sometimes I'm wondering if we should be more general and have fewer things. But but one of the things that we require of all performance majors is we need you to prove that you're fluent in at least four musical styles. You know, you need to master at least four. And wow, I mean, there's I other things like you need to be able to play a jazz lead sheet and be able to understand the changes, the harmonies, the chords. And they're getting a lot of that in their theory core, you yeah. know, and in their harmony core. But um, there are some specific requirements we want for performance majors. Now, in reality, you know, like I've had I've had students, I've got a great um, a great uh, student, Peter J. Uh, P Peter Pizzino, who now is an orchestra teacher out in um, New Jersey. But I remember some lessons where he's like, I really don't like jazz and I really don't like <laughs> funk. And, you know, it's like, Peter, that's okay. My job isn't for you to like those things. It's just understand it and be fluent in it. And it was funny. Well, here's another transformational um, story. I mean, he's someone who was adopted and I, I I think his home country was Peru, but he's an indigenous student. And, you know, he came and I remember this one lesson and he played violin and viola and has, has so much talent. I remember this one lesson and, you know, and, and, and so what do you really want to do? And he's like, well, I really want to play Celtic music. But, you know, he basically <laughs> was saying no one wants to see a, Celtic band with someone who looks like me playing Celtic oh, music and it's like that's just heartbreaking to hear hitting that's a draw and it is heartbreaking to hear but th there's a good story yeah. because he actually and you know I, I cheered him on every step of the way you know and he auditioned for the Royal Conservatory in Scotland and, and at his audition well it's funny he had posted on Facebook something and again you know, you, you know your students, you know the ones who think they're perfect and the God's gift to music, and you know the ones who are self-deprecating. You know, Peter tends more towards the self-deprecating side of the spectrum, and he talked about his audition and said, hey, that audition actually went pretty well. They said, you know, it's so nice to hear those tunes on viola. So he got in, full scholarship and everything, got his master's degree there. 
wrote a concerto for himself and he also plays like lever harp came back to berkeley went to one of the liberal arts classes and he's giving this lecture on all these ins and outs of scottish meters and ornamentation and playing as a soloist with a local orchestra and it's like the thing is students need permission what they if i told permission. what if i told them you know you're right just you know get why are you doing performance anyway get an education degree you know but but no i mean he he went for it he developed into a great performer he was also teaching in the private schools which was a window into getting into the public schools he has his own orchestra he turned this orchestra program around and he has all this great knowledge that he can use uh, and again giving his own students permission you know and so i mean i'm really proud of that kind of um fortitude and that kind of blessing we're like you know again I, I think the thing that's really great about the string department at berkeley it's like whoever you are wherever you're from we accept you we respect you we celebrate you and we want to see what happens when we come together as a community so i mean i think that's really kind of maybe i should go back to school as berkeley needed a bonus I'll tell you something, you know, a lot of music schools, there's a hard cutoff. We do have older students at Berkeley, and there's quite a few students who've come through during my time who are in their 20s or 30s. And by 20s, I mean like 25 and older, not the- What about 42? 42 <laughs> you're never, you're you're never too young and rarely or what you're never too old and rarely too young to twinkle or something you know it's you're never too old to berkeley you know um we have actually had in our summer camps and summer programs we had a woman who was a concert master in tokyo and you know that was someone who was in her 50s who just came because she wanted this wonderful we have a berkeley global string intensive the last week in june and it's basically our summer camp. And while it's geared more towards uh, high school students, we do oftentimes have people who are in their careers or in their 40s or 50s and music teachers. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I'll just talk about the. A million thanks to our listeners, followers and subscribers. The support we receive monetarily and otherwise helps us to be able to spend time creating a quality product and it allows us to tap into partnerships and resources to which we wouldn't normally have access. We are stoked about the journey of learning we have ahead of us and we are delighted you've decided to join.